From blue-eyed soul to pop, R&B standard singer-songwriter Bobby Caldwell is still at the top of his game. The center of his musical world is the huge 1978 R&B hit, What You Won't Do For Love. You know the song well, the hooks, the horns, and the groove. The track has become one of the most beloved R&B hits in the world and is constantly on global playlists. From Japan to Australia to Denmark, Bobby Caldwell's ability to tour continuously is proof that there is still demand for his smooth, sultry, and addictive vocals. The multi-instrumentalist has worked with the best of the best, from Toto to Chicago, to Boss Gags, Peter Cetera, and Al Jarreau, to create compositions that end up as hits. Whether singing big band classics or R&B grooves, Bobby Caldwell continues to be the real deal. Inside Music Cast welcomes Bobby Caldwell. Hey, Bobby, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, guy. No problem. Yeah. By the way, joining us today, of course, is Kim Riley, our correspondent in Florida. Kim, say hi. Hi, all. Hey, Kim, how are you doing? Hey, how are you? Hey, Bobby, you know, welcome to Inside Music Cast, like Rick said, and, and thanks for taking the time from your busy touring schedule. And uh, uh, your, your career has spanned, you know, over almost 40 years, and and you seem to be going stronger and stronger. And, and, you know, in 2012, you released House of Cards. That was a wonderful project. Uh, but you seem to continually uh, in- increase um, and even uh, in- changing your repertoire over these in these past few years, right? Is it getting stronger and stronger? Yeah, it is. <laughs> if it is, I wish it would hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess what I'm saying is that touring hasn't slowed down for you, and you do a, a quite variety of of shows as you travel the country, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talk to us a, lot, a little bit about that as to what type of uh, shows uh, uh, listeners typically go to on a Bobby Caldwell show. Well, it depends, and hopefully we we properly advertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what it's going to be. Um, basically, I've always been known as a blue-eyed soul singer, and my my most of my career has been doing that. But uh, because I was influenced by, you know, the, the music of uh, the 40s, like the American Songbook, mm-hmm. um, I just have always had, you know, the notion that I was going to do this one day. And, and so we did. It's been uh, well over 10 years ago that we started doing it. And um, I just, I love to do it as a diversion, if for no other reason. But among a handful of artists, uh, I consider myself, you know, somebody who's going to carry the torch for the songbook. Mm-hmm. It's fun to do that. You know, we all know that at the it's kind of in the center of your musical universe is that amazing little tune called "What You Won't Do for Love." You know and that <laughs> that really sort of started it all for you. And uh, you know, does it does it surprise you how this this R and B song has remained such you know such a beloved staple for so many years? I it truly does. Um, given the fact that I really didn't think it was going to be a hit, mm-hmm. or the hit that it was uh, in the first place. Yeah, you know. So you know. Now looking back from today, um, God, it's just—it has seen so many uh, cover versions. I've lost track now. Right, exactly. Um, and it just refuses to like go away, and I, I'm blessed by that. Yeah, you know, count that blessing every day. 
Exactly. You know, we remember a while back, uh, we've interviewed, like I say, a, a lot of producers and, and artists. And I, re- I recall, Bobby, when we talked uh, with Michael Omardian, we were talking about Christopher Cross's sailing project. And, uh, uh, I know Michael. He's a wonderful guy. Uh, he's one of the best. And um, and <laughs> I remember asking him about that song, and he said, oh, yeah. He, he said, that song has been very good to Christopher and me. You know, I'd, and I, I'd, of course, we'd say, you know, uh, what you won't do for love has been really good for you, too, especially on an international level, right? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> no doubt about it. And I mean, you know, it sees peaks and valleys right. throughout the course of its history. Right. Um, most recently, it has seen a huge peak because of the Mitsubishi commercial on television. I know. <laughs> which has done astounding things for, I guess it's okay to say that. Of course. <laughs> uh, astounding things for the song. And, you know, you kind of start to see the Perkins sales again. Mm-hmm. And, and it's uh, it's markable. Exactly. You know, uh, we you're you're pointing out that uh, um, you know using the Mitsubishi ad. You know, my my daughter who's in college. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because you know she said she was watching TV one evening while studying while in school, and uh, that came on, and she knew she uh, sort of was was raised with that that tune. So among hundreds and hundreds of others that her old dad, me, you know, <laughs> had shown her, but of course she didn't know the name, uh, and because they were using a portion of the song. So, of course, she shazammed it, and she said, oh, Dad, you know. And then she's the one that actually told me that there's Bobby Caldwell tune on a Mitsubishi ad. You can't believe it. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I remember that when that came out a few months back, and that was uh, must have been a nice uh, nice little cherry into the year. Well, what was, is she, like, 21 or 22 then? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's flattering that, uh, you know, a young gal that age would, like, you know, recognize the song. That's, yeah. that's you know, and there it is again. It's extraordinary. Absolutely. Yeah. You you were born in New York, correct? Yeah. Manhattan. And then of course you spent a lot of time in Miami. So tell us about the kind of music you were you were listening to as a kid because you know there was probably a good helping of Cuban salsa and Latin music down there <laughs> that you were probably getting yourself into. Oh, sure there was. Yeah. Well, you know, my folks uh, we moved from my uh, from New York, uh, I think when I was 4 to uh-huh. Miami. And uh, I didn't pay much attention at that point in time to cultural music, but I was an avid radio listener Yeah, uh, throughout my young adult life. And um, the thing about growing up in Miami, it was more of a an experience insofar as there was no skyline. Yeah. It was a beautiful place to grow up. Life was simple. I could get on my bike and ride for a couple of miles without anyone wondering where I was. Yeah. Um, or, you know, f- fear of predators or that, that kind of thing. Right. It was right. a great... Great way to grow up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I became 10, 11, 12 in there, I just started, to, you know, to teach myself guitar and was enthralled with uh, AM radio, which is basically mm-hmm. all we had in Miami. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were great radio days. Uh, radio days of the hit parade, you know, the Hot 100. And right. So many kinds of music um, occupied, especially, you know, the top, the top 10. Yeah. So it was diversified, and it was a, it was a a great moment for radio, and that was part of the backdrop of my life was mm-hmm. listening to radio. Yeah, I guess this goes back to uh, New York, but your parents were the hosts of a TV show called Supper Time. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd read about that, but I I didn't know about. Was that a locally based uh, show in New York? It was uh, in New York and Pittsburgh. Well, I was just curious. You know, I, they were really kind of into show tunes, right? I mean, that was sort of... Uh, sort it, it was a variety show. And, yeah. you know, this was at a time when 
there were only a couple of states, you know, I'd, I'd say maybe five, six states that had television. Okay. Um, and this was, a, you know, a moment in time as well when people would gather around a storefront outside on the cold sidewalk to see this little tube sitting in the window, you know, just enthralled. And look where we've come. You know, you, you mentioned a few minutes before we started the interview that, you know, you, you grew up listening to the classics, the American songbook, you know, Sinatra, Nat King Cole, you know, Tony Bennett. Um, that was part of your, your upbringing. I mean, it was, it was sort of woven into who you had grown up to be, right? Yeah, it was at least to the point where I kind of painted my walls black and, you know, <laughs> closed the door and became like a sullen teenager. Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, I grew up in Sinatra headquarters. And yeah. then, you know, around the time I was like nine or ten, I started to rebel and the Hendrix posters went up and all that stuff. And, you know, went through all the changes. Yeah. Look, Anyone who has kids knows about that. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> hey, hey, Bobby, I'm curious. Um, with that said, when you're not performing these days, are you listening to the classics or are you listening to newer music? We're all over the map uh, here at home. Yeah. Um, uh, you guys had mentioned uh, off mic uh, Steely Dan. Yeah. And, you know, it, it depends on what, what the mood is, but, you know, we, we'll hear everything from Steely Dan here at the house. Uh, the Beatles are the four tops, to Marvin Gaye, to Frank Sinatra. Um, so we're pretty much, you know, listening to everything. So are there any other kids in, uh, are your, are your children, are they musicians? Uh, one of them is, really? um, and the other one is a chef. And, uh, I have a stepdaughter also 22 and she works at one of the major news networks in, uh, New York. Very oh, very cool. cool. Very neat. You seem to be a multi-instrumentalist, but it all started for you with the piano. Is that correct? No, actually, uh, the guitar was my first Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of that was the allure of it. You know, all the cool guys getting the women, you know, they were wearing a <laughs> guitar. And I, I, I defy anybody out there, any of my peers, to say that they weren't influenced by that allure, you know, in one way or another. Mm-hmm. So there's that, until you realize one day that, hey, this is going to be work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You were, you were 17 and already playing in, in Vegas when you hit L.A. to record an album named Katmandu with your band. Tell us about heading out west in, in this album. Talk to us you know, about this timetable of events. Uh, well, the, that timetable is a little off. The, the Katmandu record was made in Miami. Oh, okay. Um, and, you know, I had a local band there, and we were doing original music and some Top 40, you know, cover versions of songs. Um, we were uh, making a record, and we got heard one day by Little Richard, of all people. And uh, he moved us out to L.A., and, you know, we were anxious to get out there in the first place. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I went through, or should I say I served my time in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. with, you know, went upwards of 30 years. Was it Little Richard that actually said, hey, you guys come on out here and, and hang with us a little bit? Yeah, well, he had a you know pretty good record deal on Warner Brothers at right. the time, and with the promise of that possibly in our future, yeah, it looked like a, a pretty good thing. So uh, you know, we moved out there, you know, but eventually one thing led to another, and we went our separate ways. And I went through a number of groups, like do most players, you know, trying to stay alive by playing like local clubs and stuff like that. And we did; we managed to stay alive, right. while at the same time. 
you know, beating the streets of Los Angeles, uh, you know, yeah. trying to come up with some kind of a uh, record deal. Exactly. So, I mean, you you must have been pretty, uh, fairly accomplished of a guitar player to, to capture the eye of uh, Little Richard or maybe either other potential uh, band people that, that needed a, a spare spare wheel as a guitarist. I mean, uh, you were... How did you uh, how did you hang with the the session or the you know the players in the LA scene? Well, that's a pretty broad scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you're saying accomplished guitar player. Uh, however, you know, with all due respect, um, the real requirement for Richard was just an O three basic chord. <laughs> 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 so, uh, but I tell you what, after two years of that, I had those. I had them down. Cold. You had them down pat. You'll never forget those. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's great. So, so how was the connection bridging back to, you know, uh, you know, when you were signed, you headed back to Miami, and and take TK Records comes into the picture. And, okay. Uh, well, um, I'll I'll draw a bridge between the two, please. You know, finally, um, the pounding of the street thing got really old and I just was not coming up with what I felt I really wanted to do especially in in the way of you know financial support somebody to underwrite a project just to give me the chance to get in and do an album and I had a I had a boatload of original songs some of which I definitely would not want you to hear at this point (laughs) Uh, but I actually went back to Miami you know with my tail between my legs and, you know, upon my mom's insistence, she kept badgering and badgering and trying to get me to go down to this local label that was riding high the crest of, you know, just, you know, popularity with Casey and the Sunshine Band. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here it was right in my own backyard. So I ended up going down there one day and several days later signed a record deal. Uh, and it was like carte blanche all the way. They had several studios on the property. And uh, this was like, you know, <laughs> the heavens opening up for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I proceeded to, you know, get busy about, you know, making a, a first album. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's such a great story, of course, in, in continuation of of what happened at, at DK. Because this is uh, this is basically the, the production of, of your first self-titled album that we're talking about. And yeah. uh, it all ha- it all has to do really with with TK and and uh, you know when you finished your recording, um, what did and didn't they hear? Because uh, you went back to the studio. Tell us the rest of the story. This is very uh, okay. So you're talking about yeah that is that is becoming a popular story. I don't yeah. know how, but <laughs> it's uh, it is accurate. Um, you know, I had spent all this time, you know, getting so close to the music, I couldn't see the forest through the trees, and. Uh, you know, I, I finished completely. You know the project and gave it to them, and they were they were thrilled with it. But they didn't feel like they had you know something they wanted to be a lead single, as they used to say back then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an unknown artist out of the box, and uh, something that you know had the power and appeal, where they didn't have like an up uphill battle. And so, after all this time, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, um, I went back in haste and did. What You Won't Do for Love, giving pretty much little thought to it. And I guess, if you read between the lines there, there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, absolutely. And in retrospect, you know, I can see how that was part of the building blocks of me becoming a writer after the fact. 
mm-hmm. is, you know, gaining the little pieces of knowledge you get from each project. So I guess the dichotomy of the whole thing is that, you know, the enormous amount of time spent, you know, beating myself up, then letting go and doing what you won't do for love, and, mm-hmm. you know, look what rose to the top. Yeah. That's the moral of the story. Well, you know, that song was, was such an R&B style track and, and, you know, you being, you know, considering the time and considering, you know, that being on TK and, and uh, the fact that you were white, tell us a little bit about, was there an issue with uh, any sort of issues and with marketing with TK or with just the... Yes, there, there was an issue from their perspective, yeah which I, you know, being wet behind the ears and, you know, uh-huh. you know, not really just naive in general. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand that perspective, but you know, yeah. at, at the end of the day, it was all about them, and uh, they just didn't feel, you know, they wanted such, I guess, an R and B oriented uh, act. They didn't want to handle the white thing, okay. and understandably, because all of their stuff was basically launched from an R and B radio format, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's where they got the legs for every record that became a success, including Casey and the Sunshine Band. Yeah, right. The sidebar to that, I, I have to add, the times in radio at that point, it was like disco saturation. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's basically all we were hearing, folks. Yeah, right. <laughs> so a, a couple of things were at play uh, with TK Records. Um, while they're riding high, the crested disco, it's quickly... You know, coming to an end, and I think, as I recall, one of the people who worked over there said to me one day um, that they were kind of looking at me as their quote-unquote boss gag. And then (laughs) when I heard that, I realized, all right, so I I think I'm getting a better picture of what they're thinking. Yeah, (laughs) right. But it was after the fact that, you know, the artist thing finally came into it, because I really hadn't found myself yet you know it was the success of the record that kind of dictated you know where i was headed and who i was you know tell us a little bit about uh, you know you you had just delivered your your first album and it had this track that you sort of you know you you went back to the studio you wrote it and you hit gold and tell us a little bit about the process you know on this album um was this did tk designate who was going to play on it was this your band did and uh you know what kind of instruments did you play if any on the album uh, I played most of the instruments uh, except for the horns and uh, the drums. Yeah. Uh, and they, uh, you know, I had some, you know, other artists appear in and out throughout the album. Mm-hmm. But they didn't, they weren't very strict about in- enforcing, you know, their ideals on me. So that that's what I meant by carte blanche is not just, you know, free run of the studio, but artistically, you know, enough rope to hang myself. that's funny you know you know the horn arrangement and that famous of course hook which is the the what you won't do for love hook it's just so famous after 30 years that you know well first of all everyone has sampled it to start off with so um and we can go on forever on on that fact alone at first when people started borrowing it um compliment or thievery what did you think about that 
did I steal it? No, no, no. I was saying, no, I was saying that. You know, no. if, if that's the question, I'll come clean right now. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. As people borrowed from you, you know, oh, oh, for did the they track. Steal it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so well, when it started happening at the very beginning, was it thievery or? <laughs> Thievery is rampant. It's everywhere. Uh, no, it was, well, I'll, I'll take the first hit. Okay. Um, look, I was a huge Earth, Wind, and Fire fan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there were a couple of songs right at the beginning of their onslaught radio that, you know, just had these horn figures. That's the way of the world. Um, getaway, stuff like that. And I was always influenced by the fact that they were kind of signature to the song. And i got to say that, that that horn line of What You Want to Do for Love, you know, it was inspired by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm-hmm. So if it's thievery, uh, I think it's more flattery than thievery to, right. uh, you know, be inspired by something like that. So whoever wants to take the horn line and sample it, um, obviously, you know, for the listeners that don't know, it's free game out there. Mm-hmm. Depending on the sampling that's done, you know, you do get credit. Sure. If it's uh, clearly a piece of the, the song, or you know, the original recording, the original master, which more often than not it is. Right. I mean, God, hey, look, when you look at what's going on with the downloading, it's right. basically uh, nothing sacred anymore. So. No. Well, moving on to... Uh to carry on, I wanted to talk about that. That sort of led you to, to Polygram in, in sessions in L.A., and, and this was this was really a fantastic album, and it allowed you to work with a lot of the guys from uh, a lot of the session players, uh, the guys from Toto, you oh, know, yeah. the majority of that pro, uh, that recording. And it was tell us about that alone. Those those choice of uh, musicians was that was that more was that a choice or more of a label decision? And um, no, it was a choice. Um, yeah. I was there and right in the middle of you know. A sea of people that I uh, was fortunate enough to quickly befriend and, you know, with mutual respect for each other. And I am pretty much, you know, I was at the top of the charts and I was able to, like, you know, uh, get with these guys from Toto first and foremost. Yeah. Um, and really just hit a chord with them um, in every respect. And we just had a ball together, and it was one of the best moments, uh, recording-wise, I've ever had. Not just in the studio, but knowing them in and out of the studio. Right. Um, and then, you know, being privy to know their friends, uh, who you know, an extraordinary lineup of talent and players. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so being exposed and having the options of all of that stuff, uh, it was it was a wealth of, of uh, art in that community. You have uh, just thinking about Eddie and I are pretty familiar with the Toto guys. We we've known them for a while, and and uh, just I'm just curious. Do you have any interesting stories from any of those sessions? Just just one funny or interesting story that you can share with us. Wow, I'm not sure I'd want to do that on <laughs> the air. <laughs> that's funny because that's that's the uh, that's the answer I thought you'd give us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> true, true to form, those guys are just the same. Nothing's changed. <laughs> uh, well, no. But, however, yet everything's changed. You yeah, know, um, yeah. You know, it's not those days of rock and roll anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and they were great, great days, man. You know, I, I guess first I should say a, a lot of us have family now. Right. So, you know, it's it's more about, you know, getting the job done. 
instead of uh, getting into yourself. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there, there's so many other reasons to live right now that compel me to, you know, to thankfully keep working mm-hmm. um, and writing. So, you know, I, I think I speak for, especially, you know, the people we just mentioned, and I know them well. And I think they would definitely say the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, Bobby and Eddie, uh, let's take a quick break. And I want to take a listen to a track from the 1982 album called Carry On. And this is a track called Words. Keep on lying to me Don't say the word 
Well, you know, your, your first three albums, you know, What You Won't Do For Love, Cat in the Hat, and Carry On, all had kind of a, a similar style, to, and it fits so nicely into that, what we call the West Coast AOR genre. And so describe this era in terms of, you know, your song development and, and that style. You know, the sound of your music during this time, you know, is a style that so many people now that, you know, are, are trying to replicate. Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm going to spare you the first two albums. Okay. Because this was, for me, uh, especially when I look back, I was growing and yet flailing at the same time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Making a lot of mistakes and making a lot of success. You know, where you, you know, your vision is realized just like a painter, you know, and everything comes out the way you would hurt it. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So I guess the trick was is, to have that happen more often than not. Right. So the growth for me was in leaps and bounds, meeting David Page and the Picaro brothers from Toto Uh and Steve Lukather. They opened my eyes to so many things. It was just phenomenal. Yeah. Um, And the learning process as a songwriter and, you know, producer, I don't know if it would have come as quickly if, if I hadn't met them and known them, mm-hmm. or, if, or if at all. Uh, but it, it, they definitely, you know, light bulbs were going off. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then th- through knowing them, you know, meeting David Foster and being able to be a part of that and mm-hmm. yeah. get into the, the songwriting camp that wrote for Chicago mm-hmm. was just a great uh, experience and learning process, too. I'm curious, um, Bobby, what moved you to start your own label, Syndrome, and when did you do that? Well, uh, it was at a time when independent labels um, seemed to be rising up, which, you know, by the way, I, I see as being cyclic. You know, it, it's like yeah. runs in cycles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was a point in time when, you know, independents were, were doing very well and looking to do even better. So uh, given the fact that we were sitting here domestically without, you know, a real record deal per se, we decided, well, you know, let's, let's just start our own label. We've got the outlets uh, for, for distribution, and uh, that's basically what we decided to do. We managed to take on a few uh, other acts during the process and, you know, wrote a pretty good crest of success for uh, upwards of a decade. Yeah. Right, that's great. You know, the, the business has changed so much since you br- first broke onto the scene with that first album. And, in fact, I, I, I read an interesting story, and, and I understand that you, you traveled, you know, at the time you traveled all over the country, you know, in a, in a station wagon or something like that, making a relationship with, with station reps by, I think, bringing them donuts and just having face-to-face meetings. And it, it just doesn't work that way anymore, right? Uh, it's a great observation and very true. So today it's a whole new paradigm. You know, um, and for people like myself that, you know, went through that time, which was a great time insofar as it was hands-on promotion, you knew what you had to do, and that was basically hit every antenna between here and Poughkeepsie, right? Right. <laughs> Up and down the eastern seaboard, seaboard and then through the Bible Belt, yep. all the way to the West Coast, and do it all. Uh, yeah. And that's what we would do. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you've heard stories from a lot of country and western stars who used to do the same thing. Yeah, that's right. So how they broke, um, you know, Elvis. Mm-hmm. And the same was true, you know, even up to the point where you know I came out as a you know a debut artist. So we were doing that, um, 
now it's it's a different ball game. Yeah. Uh, everything's social media now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. At the same time, I find that those personal contacts, uh, when you're actually doing something one-on-one with somebody, mm-hmm. uh, or making yourself accessible, it's appreciated that much more today. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you know, a second ago, you started to, you mentioned David Foster and getting into writing, you know, in that Chicago camp. And, you know, you've written some highly successful songs, you know, for other artists, including the one, uh, the Next Time I Fall in Love, that was made famous by Peter Cetera and Amy Grant. And, you know, was this, uh, you know, writing for other artists and, and, you know, obviously writing hits is a plus, but did you, was this something that, you know, you ever imagined doing, writing for others? I mean, Using that particular track, the one I just mentioned, explain how that particular song developed. And is is this something you had already written that they latched onto, or were you specifically tapped to develop a song idea for them? This was developed specifically for Chicago. Okay, not right. not uh, Peter as a solo artist, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yet for his voice because he was the voice of Chicago. He was right. yes. So it was written specifically with that voice in mind and the group Chicago Mm -hmm. um, for their forthcoming album, which would have been Chicago 18, and did indeed come out. And I did actually get on the album, um, but it wasn't that song. Unbeknownst to me, uh, Peter was leaving the group Mm -hmm. uh, and happened to find this cassette that I had sent David Foster. Mm-hmm. sitting on the console when he was taking some of his stuff out of the studio. Uh-huh. And I get a call a few weeks after this from Peter telling me he found this tape and stuck it in his coat pocket and uh, <laughs> wanted to know if I'd be all right with him doing a duet. I mean, I wouldn't have cared at that point if he had done it with the King family. <laughs> this would have been, you know, whatever he wants to do. Uh, so... The best ended up, you know, and it ended up with the voice that was written for us. So. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, that's amazing. Your 1996 album, Blue Condition, it contains the track, The Girl I Dream About, that has found its way, you know, into major films, uh, including Simone, The the Perfect Man, and um, even Her Minor Thing. Uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, songwriting, you know, for... Uh, for film, I mean, you've been uh, you've you've had the opportunity to to have your music in in a few films, um, and some of that is is stuff that's actually already done, already mm-hmm. exists, uh, and is you know picked specifically by uh, the music departments of any given film and production, where f- for a scene, let's say they're looking for a particular song or a feeling. In some cases, Sinatra which to a music department, even at Universal Pictures, is untouchable yeah. um, from a financial aspect. Yeah. So consequently, I've recorded a lot of the Sinatra stuff and the exact same arrangements. So I was fortunate you know, to get into uh, Paramount and, and Universal in that respect and then have had also, in addition to that, you know, opportunities. I wish they were more. Um, for writing for a specific scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me is like, you know, I love assignments. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the songwriting credit, uh, you know, for that song lists yourself in uh, Henry Grumpel Marx. Um, tell us a little bit about, about Henry and your connection to him. Well, Henry and I were partners for, mm-hmm. oh, 
Yeah, you guys go way back, don't you? Years. Yeah. And uh, the best of friends. And uh, the day had come, you know, after, you know, so many successes, when it was just time for us to, like, go and pursue some of the things we wanted to do apart. So that's what ended up happening there. Yeah. Yet, you know, we went through all of those great times, you know, together, including stuff outside of, you know, uh, Bobby Caldwell albums, meaning, you know, writing for other artists and and all that stuff. So we participated in the joy of having number one records, you know, throughout the years. Well, you know, it's it's funny, uh, this this particular track, The Girl I Dream About, I know I've heard this song in these movies because I've seen all three of these. And I did recall while sitting there watching the movie and hearing the track, you know, thinking that sounds so much like Bobby Caldwell. But I, <laughs> I don't think I ever really, really went back and referenced the, uh, the the credits at the end of the movie. But but uh, I do want to stop and, and let's check out this track. And, and this one appears on your 1996 album called Blue Condition. And again, this is The Girl I Dream About. From our guest today, Bobby Caldwell on Inside Music Cast. The girl I dream about Someday she will appear The girl I dream about Her face is all so clear Oh, you river, is it just my imagination? The way I feel defies a logical explanation The girl I dream about The love I've waited for I know her inside out The one that I adore I never thought that dreams came true Now I believe they do The girl I dream about Imagination The way I feel defies a logical explanation The girl I dream about The love I've waited for I know her inside out The one that I adore I never thought that dreams came true The next series of questions that we have um, come from uh, some of our correspondents who help us here at Inside Music Cast, and, and some of them that we've already asked uh, were courtesy of Brian Pearson up in Chicago. And uh, this next round come from uh, Mikhail Engstrom in Stockholm, Sweden, and we also have uh, Loretta Sassaman, uh, who lives out in Seattle. And um, 
The first one here is from Mikhail over in Sweden, and he says, besides the magnificent song Lonely Weekend on the Yellow Jackets album Samurai Samba, this album holds yet another song that actually appeared six years later on a Marilyn Scott album entitled Sky Dancing. And the, and the song uh, Mick's talking about is the instrumental tune Daddy's Gonna Miss You. Uh, but he says on Marilyn's album, you did this as a duet, and it was renamed uh, to Show Me Your Devotion. Tell us a little bit about the recording and how you uh, have worked with Marilyn over the years. Well, first of all, um, if you're familiar with Marilyn, that sounds like you are. We've had uh, her on the show before, yeah. yeah. She's always been, you know, a dear friend and one of my favorite uh, female singers out there for yeah. years and years. Yeah, she's great. Um, we've had extraordinary times together, done tours together, and... You know, I feel fortunate, you know, having no, known her and, and still know her. Yeah. The thing with uh, the Yellow Jackets, yes, this was something called Daddy's Gonna Miss You. Originally, it was written, written by the late Ricky Lawson. Oh, okay. Well, All right. Um, according to Ricky, he had written it for his daughter. Then the fellow that produced the Yellow Jackets, Tommy LaPuma, who's well-known yeah. and still is a right. producer, uh, was also going to do Marilyn's album. And I came up with the idea for me and Marilyn to put a melody and a lyric, well, not melody, because the melody was there. Sure. Uh, put a lyric to Daddy's Gonna Miss You and come up with another title, which we did. And it was called Show Me Your Devotion. Mm-hmm. You know, some things can morph like that. Yeah. Um, it happens from time to time. Mm-hmm. Well, Mikhail also has another question. Uh, you know, back in uh, October of 99, uh, you had a three or four month stint of playing the role of Frank Sinatra in a Las Vegas musical titled The Rat Pack is Back. And, and tell us a little bit about this this uh, experience. <laughs> yeah. It was a great experience, and it was uh, a little over a year, actually. Yeah. Um, it was great insofar as I was just, you know, always and continue to be Sinatra addict. Especially that part of his career, the Rat Pack era in Vegas, you know, of which I had, wish I had grown up in. It was such a glamorous time to be in, in the business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I felt at home with that. Mm-hmm. And then being exposed to his music throughout my life, you know, I felt at home with the songs. Knew most of them by heart. Even knew, you know, a lot of his inflections by heart. Not necessarily by choice. It just, you know, made its mark on me. So it made doing the Rat Pack that much more fun. Plus, we were doing a literal transcript from a show that I had seen many times on video Uh um, of them at the Sands in Las Vegas. You know, all those things together and, you know, the cast and the fact we had a live orchestra. It made it really a lot of fun. That would have been cool to see. Yeah, would have been. Yeah. <laughs> hey, while we're on the topic of, of Sinatra and the Rat Pack, uh, let's take a quick break, and uh, I want to check out Bobby's version of the Sinatra classic, Luck Be a Lady. This is from Bobby's 2010 album, The Consummate Caldwell. From our guest today, Bobby Caldwell on Inside Music Cast. <laughs> They call you Lady Luck But there is room for doubt At times you have a very unladylike way of running out You're on the stage with me The pickings 
have been lush And yet before this evening is over You might give me the brush You might forget your manners You might refuse to stay And so the best that I can do is pray Luck be a lady tonight Luck be a lady tonight Luck if you've ever been a lady to begin with Luck be a lady tonight Luck let a gentleman see How nice a girl you can be I know the way you've treated other guys you've been with Luck be a lady with me A lady doesn't leave her escort It isn't fair It isn't nice A lady doesn't wonder All over the room And blow on some other guy's dice So let's keep this party polite I never get out of my sight Stick with me, baby I'm the fella you came in with Luck, you lady Luck, let a gentleman How nice a dame you can be Yeah, I know the way you treated other guys you've been with Hey, luck, be a lady with me A lady doesn't leave her escort It isn't fair And it's not nice A lady doesn't wander All over the room And blow on some other guy's dice So let's keep this party polite I never get out of my sight You've got to stick me, baby, I'm the guy that you came in with. Luck be a lady. Luck be a lady.
Well, Bobby, our, our correspondents, they, when they dig in deep for, for questions, they go down deep. And this is one that, that, uh, that came up, and it, it basically goes like this. Uh, the question is, you know, in late 76 or 77, can you confirm that you played bass on a couple of demos that later ended up on what uh, was to become the band Pages with Richard Page and Steve George? I, I know the, the band, and I know uh, Richard and Steve very yeah. well. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that's I a played bass. Yeah, um, you know it's uh, with Russell Battling. I, the first, the first response I have is, I don't see why I would because Richard was, you know, the a wonderful bass player. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I guess so I, I have to say, uh, you know. I have no recollection of it. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, we'll have to slap our correspondence around a little bit. No, <laughs> no it's interesting because, you you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, you get to hear little side stories here and there, and sometimes things evolve into to certain things, and we're just, hey, can you confirm this or can you not? You know? I, I can tell you that I had them sing some background vocals on the Carry On album. Really? Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I just thought, you know, they were wonderful singers, um, especially with one another. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know. I, I definitely, I used them on two things, I think. Cool. Um, Bobby, how do you explain your continued popularity in Japan? Um, they really love you over there, and the Japanese fan base has heavily supported you for decades. It's a frequent stop for you there, isn't it? It is, every year, and I'm getting it ready to go a week after next. Oh, cool. Uh, it, the best way to answer that is there's something about their loyalty as far as when they embrace an artist. It just seems like it, as long as you're, you know, true to the fans um, and, you know, try to stay true to what you know they want to hear. Right. Uh, and then, you know, get in there and service the market and, you know, make yourself accessible, perform, uh, which is rapidly becoming the biggest part of this business. I mean, it's tough to sell records these days. So yeah. oh, yeah. most of the huge artists, they have to get out there and perform and uh, use that as a platform to, uh, you know, market their stuff. I'm able to do that in Japan, and that's only because I continue to do it and hopefully make records that, you know, they want to hear. Yeah. Didn't we hear somewhere that, uh, I think I might have read that, I mean, you were honored with a pretty interesting award um, there in Japan. It's, uh, which one was it? Do you know which I'm talking about, uh, Bobby? Uh, it's, it's been a lot of oh. awards, thank God. Okay, yes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, oh, my goodness. It's, um, oh, my goodness. I, I forgot. I shouldn't even brought it up. But You're I, not talking about the Billboard Magazine Award, are you? It may have been that. Well, that was, uh, that was U.S. That was 1979 for the best new black artist of the year. <laughs> <laughs> Are you that's great. Oh, that's great. Hey, you know, and then the ugly truth came out. Wait a second. Wait a, wait a second. You're not black? No. No. Hey, uh, hey they give us, they take us away. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> that's, that's funny, you know. 
Um, you know, when you go to Japan and you, you know, you have your tours over there, um, you know, when you travel with, you know, you have amazing bands that you have to put together. Tell us a little bit on, you know, the criteria when you're putting a band together and going live on a tour like that. How do you pick your musicians um, as you go from uh, from city to city? Well, uh, man, that's a that's going to take a long time to answer. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll try to condense it into just saying that for so many years we had like massive sponsorship by huge companies in Japan, one of the biggest being Philip Morris. Um, and this was, you know, something that went on and was prevalent in the industry over there for well over a decade. So we enjoyed it for better than 10 years. And enabled us to put together an incredible stage uh, that moved from city to city. Uh, and select, you know, the people that were at the top of their game. Um, now the name of the game is, and I, I got to tell your listeners that after 9-11, everything changed in every format of life, including, you know, touring. Yeah. So it's no longer, you know, riding with the semis um, overseas. <laughs> yeah. It just, you know, it's hard. So everything is reduced now to, like, carrying your personal information on a stick. Mm -hmm. uh, instruments and sound support all get backlined. Yeah. So how do I do everything today as as frugally as possible? Right. You know? Um, and that has restrictions, you know. That's why we have no blankets on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Everything is, like, disappearing. <laughs> hey, the next uh, the next few questions come from uh, Loretta Sassaman from uh, Seattle. And, and uh, one of the things she mentioned is, is the idea of reinventing yourself. And you've done it. She says you've done it several times successfully, beginning with – R&B, smooth jazz, uh, to big band. And is there, she wants to know, is there a genre that you've either seriously or not seriously wanted to take on? Wow. Um, hmm, that's interesting. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I, sure. Uh, I've always wanted to do more theater. I've had the chance to do some theater. So I, I would definitely look at something if it came my way. Yeah. Um. I've always been a country and western fan, uh, so I was able to like get a couple of tunes on uh, what is now the current album called House of Cards. Uh, I got a couple of country songs I wrote and put on there. Uh -huh. I kind of snuck them between the cuts, uh -huh. as I say. But uh, for the most part, you know, just to continue and be fortunate to do that, mm -hmm. what I'm doing, and that's really. All I aspire to, and hopefully, you know, see positive changes in the music business. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you know, you know, we've been sort of weaving in and out as to the changes of the the music industry. Of course, this is a hot topic that we talk with a lot of our guests lately. Is you know how the music industry has changed. Um, but you know, here at Inside Music Cast, we've even discussed um, discuss it with the likes like um, a recent guest. His name's uh, he's an artist producer, Brent Bourgeois, who um, who says that he's sad that his son. Uh, a buddy musician and artist himself won't really have the privilege of knowing what working and recording in a music industry was like. 
Um, where do you see this thing in five to ten years? Do you have an idea as to where we're going to end up, or what? What do you see through your lens? Well, well. Wow. Um, the first thing I want to see happen is like control over intellectual property. Yeah. And I want. I don't want to get on a soapbox about yeah, it, but right. just I know. you know, I think everyone realizes and is aware, even though I'm guilty of doing it myself. You know. Downloading and, you know, the person who created it is, is seeing, you know, basically nothing for it. Uh, it's, it's an issue. Yeah. Um, and will continue to be. Hopefully, you know, that will, you know, make more progress. And it, it is making progress. Uh, there are inroads being made and more avenues uh, developed right now to get paid. But um, then I'd like to see, you know, young artists actually start playing again. You know, rediscovering what it's like to actually put together a piece of music uh, with, you know, other people who are, you know, into the same thing. And I was commenting to one of my daughters the other day, you know, when I was growing up, we had bands. <laughs> I mean, I guess it was the era, but, you know, most everyone wanted to play guitar or drums, and, you know, that's the way it was. And it wasn't hard to form a band back then. Right. There are no more bands, of not at least around here where I live. Yeah, exactly. Hey, um, Loretta, is an, another question she has, and I'm going to actually expand on it a little bit. She says, who in today's popular music do you see remaining steadfast in 20 years? But, but what I want to add to that is, is uh, what artists are you, do you really appreciate that are, that are out right now that, that you're listening to and you think you know, are, are a very viable band in, in, in this day and age? Uh, or, or artists? Wow. Okay, nobody. Next. <laughs> uh, That's a tough one, really. Yeah. It is a tough one. Um, it's tough because I'm, I am a huge Lady Gaga fan. Uh-huh. I, I just, I think she's just, you know, multi-talented as far as um, being a diverse singer. And I'm sure she'll eventually go on to develop an acting career because the thing she did with Tony Bennett blew my mind. Right. Uh, I think it was Lady of the Tramp. She was extraordinary. Great. Mm-hmm. There's a guy named Usher, yeah, uh, who I think is a real class act. Mm-hmm. He's had several number one records. Mm-hmm. Um, a great dancer and, you know, somebody that was inspired by a friend of mine who's gone, uh, Gregory Hines. Yes. Um, but a guy who is just a class act. God, if there there are so many, and I hear them all because I, you know, I'm surrounded by women here, three or three, <laughs> who are 22 years old. <laughs> you know, it's weird, guys, but you know, when they're born, you're going, oh, it's so, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, until you realize they're not going to leave. <laughs> uh, what am I waiting for here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's great. <laughs> No, that that is that is funny that you're bringing up that uh, Tony Bennett. That actually was a question that we had in line here from um, from Loretta. That of course the new project Cheek to Cheek by Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga. That's uh, that's getting huge, huge reviews. And apparently Tony Bennett really loved the experience too. Uh, you know, I believe it. He looked like he did. Yeah. Um, I don't know him personally, but you know, listening to him for well over forty five years, I, I feel like I do. Yeah. So that's... yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great pairing. You know, unlike so many hundreds of duets we get bludgeoned with, it's uh, it's great to see you know one of the precious few that just totally click. 
Yeah. And I did. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think Kim had a, a comment she wanted to make. Kim, are you, are you there? I, I just wanted to mention, Bobby, that when you were here in Boca Raton, Florida, which is pretty close to Miami, um, I've been here since the late 70s, so I, I can relate to all the Miami stories and stuff, but um, I had Ambrosia down here at the amphitheater, which was very close yes, to Jazz. Yes, yes, Remember? Yes. So it was such a treat, and they were so excited, and they just had such a great time coming to see you the next night. It was unusual that that was ironic that that landed together, but we it just had such a great perfect. time. And and they, what yeah, they were so- a lovely group of guys. Um, it was just a great hang. We, we had a lot of fun that night. Yeah, it was great. So thank you for that, and your performances are just spectacular. Well, thanks for saying so. That's great. Well, hey, Bobby, this has been a great chat. Uh, we thank you for all the time you've spent with us uh, in, in, in learning more about you, and, and, it, and uh, you know, our listeners, I'm sure, are really are digging this chat. Um, I just Another question I have just to wrap things up is uh, what's next for you? What, what's coming out? Uh, what do you have that you're working on next? Uh, obviously, you're going to be touring some more, but uh, mm-hmm. are you working on any new rig- original material or any, any interesting projects? I just projects? finished uh, two projects, actually. Okay. Um, one that will be out November 1, um, it's called After Dark. It's a brand new album. Oh, okay. Uh, and it is uh, also a continuation of the American Songbook. And I think, you know, the best thing we've done in the studio so far with that. Then I have this project just wrapping up right now with uh, CeeLo Green and a list of other artists um, produced by myself and Jack Splash. Wow, cool. Uh, and we're just thrilled about it. Um, and. As we speak, artists are hopping on the bandwagon, so it's that's looking really, you know, promising for after cool. the new year. That's exciting. That's cool. Well, Bobby, again, thanks so much, and I also wanted to thank one more time Brian Pearson, Loretta Sassaman, uh, and Mikhail Engstrom, who, uh, and and of course Kim Riley, who's joining us today thanks, uh, down Kim. in Florida. Thanks, thanks for joining yeah, us, Kim. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, guys. Oh, it's been great. Thank you, Bobby. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll keep in touch, Bobby. Take care. You too, folks. Bye. Right, bye. Bye. Special thanks to Bobby Caldwell for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zabe, Mikhail Ingstrom, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Uniland for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.